Okay. It's allergy season. I'm having so much fun. You'll want to get out your sermon outline so you can follow along. Today we're going to talk about the reversal of the king. We are at the end of Matthew chapter 21. It's a very long passage, about half the chapter, so we're going to read it as we go through it. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You brought us once again to this amazing Gospel of Matthew to learn about Jesus. So we ask this morning that you would give us the grace to understand these parables, to see ourselves in them, to learn their lessons, to apply them to our lives. Help us to consider what it means to follow you in faith and repentance. So open this Gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. So last Sunday, I went to lunch with a couple of guys uh, after church, and we were swapping stories, uh, most of which were true. And uh, I realized on the way home that one of those stories would be a good introduction to today's message. So to those guys, sorry you have to hear it again. For the rest of you, if you were here back then, you heard it in November of 2002, as I'm sure you'll remember. Anyway, the story comes from when I commanded a basic training company at Fort Jackson, South Carolina, back in the mid-80s. And one night, my company was on a live-fire assault exercise where you were basically in a trench. You had to come out and low-crawl on your belly through this range while machine guns were being fired over your head. And just to make things interesting, there were demolition pits uh, on the course, which were surrounded by concertina wire, which is kind of like barbed wire, just sharper. And uh, these demo pits would explode every few minutes. Now, reality is the machine guns were set on towers that were about 12 to 15 feet over your head. So you weren't in any real danger, but your depth perception in the middle of the night, uh, it's not very good in the dark. And so when you saw the tracers go by, you would swear they were just mere inches away. You became very close friends with the dirt. And so your adrenaline levels up. The noise from the machine guns firing is deafening. There's explosions going off all around you. And you're pushing and yelling at everybody to keep moving and get through the course. And mostly, you didn't want anybody just to freeze out there, to panic and get stuck. And you didn't want them to lose their equipment or weapons on the course and have to go back and get them. So you watched everyone, and you yelled at everyone, and you pushed everyone to get through. And when you finished the course, there was another big trench at the other end of the uh, course, and everyone sort of flopped into it. And then the platoon sergeants and squad leaders would go around and check everyone out, make sure uh, they were okay and they had all their equipment, which they never did and they were never all okay. But fortunately, there was always medics waiting for you 
there. Loved the medics. They just stitch you up in the dark and send you back. It was great. Well, anyways, I'm one of the last ones to go and to clear the range and make sure everybody's gotten through. And finally, I get down to the end and I get into the trench. And I'm walking down the line, checking everyone, make sure everything's getting done. And I look way down at the end of the trench, about 30, 40 yards away, and there's two soldiers sitting up on the side of the trench. It's not a good thing. And so I yell down there in my most menacing voice, what are you doing? Your drill sergeant said get down in the trench. You had best get down in the trench. And both guys jumped down into the trench. And so I'm walking down there, and I'm thinking, who are these guys? And I'm ready to rip into them. And just as soon as I get up to them, I realize they're not my troops. It was the battalion commander, who's a lieutenant colonel, and the brigade commander, who's a full colonel. And I'm sure they're thinking, who is this guy? And I'm thinking, I'm a dead man. So I just stopped, and I heard the brigade commander say, Evening, David. We're down in the trench. Now, fortunately for me, they thought it was pretty funny. You see, I thought I was the authority in that situation until I came upon another with real authority, far beyond my own. And that's the situation at the end of Matthew 21. See, there's a group of people, the chief priests and the elders and the Pharisees and the teachers, and they think they're the authority. So they challenge the authority of another, Jesus Christ, because they fail to recognize the real authority that he has, and they fail to recognize the real authority that he is. And just as Jesus turned the tables in the temple, so now he turns the tables on his accusers. So let's turn to our text for this morning, Matthew 21, second half of the chapter. We'll be starting at verse 23, and there we see the challenge is reversed, and that's the first blank in your outline, the challenge is reversed. It says, and when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. He's not being rude. This is a common means of debate. He says, and if you tell me the answer, then I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven? or from man. And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, if you remember the situation... Jesus has now come into Jerusalem. He rode into town on a colt with this crowd following, covering his path with palm branches and cloaks. And as he passed, they shouted praises to him. And he came into Jerusalem and gave people the opportunity to see that he's coming as the king. And one day he would be coming again as the king. 
And then he chased the men selling animals and changing the money out of the temple. And he set up shop there in the temple, healing people and teaching them about God. And people gathered around, and they're listening to him uh, teach. And so while he's teaching, the priests and the uh, teachers and elders are plotting how to get rid of him. So they begin to ask controversial questions that hold the possibility of somehow tripping him up, getting him to say something that either went against the law or that would damage his credibility with the people. And so his opponents are trying to test him, and they decide to test him on the issue of authority. After all, the, the reality is they're just trying to find a way that they can arrest him. They're plotting against him. Ultimately, they're seeking to destroy him. And we know that because the Bible tells us that. The very uh, last verse says they were seeking to arrest him. In the next chapter, Matthew 22, verse 15, it says the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And then in the parallel passage in Luke, Luke 19, we read, he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. So what authority did Jesus claim? Now those who walked with Jesus day by day knew he's more than just a poor boy from Nazareth. He taught with authority, he healed people with power, he argued with amazing clarity against the religious leaders. In many ways, the Gospel of Matthew has just one point. Who is this guy? The crowds, the disciples, the religious authorities, even Jesus himself, all seem absorbed in answering that question. Who is this guy? And Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is grounded upon two displays of authority. First, his triumphal entry. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with the adoration of the people. And second, the cleansing of the temple when he drove out the money changers. And the scriptural reality, if you remember when we talked about those passages, is the true temple. Jesus has come to the temporary temple. His cleansing act signaled both the coming destruction of Herod's temple and his sovereign role as the temple of his people. So for a few glorious days, you have the new temple, Jesus, uh, sitting and teaching in the old temple, a building in Jerusalem. And he taught with marvelous authority, just as he's always done from the very beginning of his ministry. You remember we saw him back in Capernaum, and uh, Mark tells us in Mark 1, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Similarly, after the Sermon on the Mount, we read in Matthew 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So how does he get away with usurping their authority? I mean, they're asking themselves, who is this guy? So the religious leaders go into action. They're not going to let his assertions of authority and teaching of authority go uh, unchallenged. So they put their heads together and they sort of sweep down on Jesus in verse 23. It says, when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? They want to know what authority lay behind his triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple, and his right to teach in the temple. 
You think about who's challenging them here. The teachers of religious law or the scribes, they have authority. They've studied with the rabbis. They had qualifications and credentials. They're the seminary professors of their day. And the priests have authority. They had inherited the position of priests going all the way back to Aaron and Levi. They're the leading ministers of their day. And the elders of the people have authority. They have the age and experience. They gain leadership in social and economic affairs of the community. They're the leading elders of their day. And together, these three groups of authoritative people make up the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. And they knew Jesus had no formal training with the rabbis, he had no priestly lineage, and he didn't have the age and experience of the elders. So how does he get away as teaching as one who had authority and usurped their authority? Who is this guy? See, derived authority is a major pillar in their system. The act of teaching is normally this tedious chain of citing other authorities. Rabbi Meir says, but Rabbi Judah says, but Rabbi Simeon also permits. But Jesus didn't teach that way. When he taught, he taught as the authority. He taught letting people know that he was the authority. And moreover, they correctly assumed that nobody, no other leader in Israel had been consulted about the correctness of his teaching and of his activities, much less had given their approval. So they wanted, uh, they hoped, that he's going to be forced somehow to admit this uh, and then would be discredited in the eyes of the people. They admit that he, nobody gave him this authority. Little did they know. Of course, Jesus sees the trap that they're trying to set for him, and he counters them with this brilliant question. Verse 24, I will also ask you one question. This, again, is a permitted form of debate. And he says, if you tell me the answer, then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And see, the problem is John the Baptist was a popular guy. Vast crowds of people had received his baptism of repentance as they confessed their sins. We saw that all the way back in Matthew chapter 3. John said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Likewise, we see in Luke 3, and talking about John the Baptist, it said he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But the leaders had refused John. And John the Baptist confronts him. Going back to Matthew 3, we see, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke tells us they outright rejected the words of John in Luke 7. When all the people heard this and the tax collectors too, they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So now, amidst all the crowds of the people in the temple, it wouldn't be wise for them to deny that John's authority was from heaven. 
If they said his baptism was from heaven, they'd be admitting that they had sinned in rejecting his baptism. <coughs> it's allergy season. It could be a long morning. And even worse, they would have to admit that what John said was true. And one of the things that John said was that Jesus was the Messiah. <coughs> they don't want to admit that. That's in John 1. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. <coughs> he says, for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. There is no way that these leaders are going to consider Jesus to be the Messiah. So with this question hanging heavy, these uh, sort of self-assured, know-it-all religious authorities simply say, we don't know. They actually do know. They know they can't give either of those answers. So they try to trick Jesus, and he turns the tables. He reverses the challenge. Now, if they truly believe that Jesus was a fraud, it's their duty to tell the people, regardless of the personal cost. But they're opposing him for personal reasons, for self-centered reasons. And so Jesus responds to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But he doesn't just stop with reversing the challenge. He then tells them a parable, which demonstrates the contrary to what the religious leaders thought and considering themselves to be the true believers. In reality, the believers are reversed. Believers are reversed. Look at verse 28. The story Jesus tells could be a common scene in any Jewish household. He says, verse 28, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. He went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your mind and believe him. He essentially answers the first part of the question for them, that John came from heaven, and they didn't believe him. So now he shares this simple story, this simple parable. His father has the right to command his sons to go into the vineyard, and they have a responsibility to obey. And none of the religious leaders would have disagreed with the responsibility to recognize the father's authority. Any one of them would have judged the second son as a rebel and worthy of punishment for spurning or ignoring his father's authority. Now remember, these guys are essentially the Supreme Court of Israel. They regularly declare judgment on those who resisted authority. But they can't see how they're rejecting Christ's authority. They see the implications in the story. They know what he's talking about. But they refuse to see the evidence of Christ's authority over their lives and commanding them to repent and believe. And Jesus had called attention to John's message, but who listened? Not the religious leaders. See verse 32. 
John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. So Jesus is saying, they're like the son who said, I will go, but didn't go into the vineyard. They're long on talk and short on obedience. And submission to God's authority in Christ demands more than words. It's a call to faith and obedience to Christ. The God who sees our hearts is never impressed with an outward profession that doesn't result in an inward submission to Christ. And there's an amazing thing in the middle of this passage there uh, at the end of verse 31. I'm sure they would have just loved to have heard this part when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you. Thank you very much. I mean, he's saying the lowest and the least, the most hated, the least regarded, the most despised in all of Israel responded and found hope in the authoritative message of John concerning the Messiah. The most despised people in Israel, though at first rejecting obedience like the first son, later responded and followed after the Lord. They believed the message of John the Baptist and later of Jesus himself. And so they believed and followed, although they had lived lives of rebellion through greed, dishonesty, immorality. They repent of their sin, believed on the Redeemer sent by God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, they get in before you. They're the first son. You're the second son. And the religious leaders, you remember, they thought they're the most spiritual people in all of Israel. And yet Jesus is declaring just the opposite. The very ones the religious leaders would have rejected said they have no chance to be part of God's kingdom. They're the ones Jesus singles out as kingdom citizens through faith in Christ. And the declaration of Jesus throws open the doors of his kingdom to all that believe. And you don't need any credentials. And you don't need any qualifications. You just have to repent and believe. And so we see first... The challenge to Jesus' authority is reversed, and then the understanding of who the true believers really are is reversed. And then we see that the powerful are reversed, starting at verse 33. The powerful are reversed. He says, here another parable. So we have two parables in a row. He said, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to them, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And then jumping down to verse 45, see, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived 
that he was speaking about them. These are smart guys. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Remember, they couldn't answer that John was from men because they feared the crowds, and now Jesus reveals they do, in fact, fear the, fear the crowds. So they're pretty pointed words here. Jesus is telling a parable to let the priests, the teachers, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees know that he knew exactly what's going on. He knew exactly what they're trying to do. He knew exactly what they're like. And they understood all that as well. They got the point. And they're not happy about it. And one reason they're not happy is because this picture that Jesus paints employs an image that everyone readily understood, a vineyard representing Israel. Israel thought of itself as the vineyard of God. And there's a number of scriptures that make that allusion. Psalm 80, Isaiah 27, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, Hosea 10. The most famous is the song of the vineyard in Isaiah chapter 5. And there the prophet Isaiah describes God's loving care for his vineyard. But then he ends it with this verse, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. See, God had done everything to ensure that Israel would become fruitful. But Isaiah describes his disappointment with the vineyard because it yielded only bad fruit. And finally, Isaiah describes his judgment on it and his mourning over it. And this vineyard-Israel connection is so much a part of their national consciousness that the very temple in which Jesus is standing sports this richly carved grapevine that was sculpted around the door. You had to walk through this door to get in the temple and had this grapevine over it. You can't miss the imagery here. This vine has sacred meaning to the Jews. And Jesus has everybody's attention as he begins this parable of the vineyard keepers. And where Isaiah's song of the vineyard was about the vineyard itself, Jesus' parable is about the failure of the keepers of the vineyard who are the leaders of Israel. And he essentially makes it an allegory where the master is God the Father, the vineyard is Israel, the uh, tenant farmers are Israel's leaders, the servants are the prophets, and of course the son is Jesus. And clearly the meaning is that God established Israel as his vineyard, put spiritual leaders, the tenant farmers, in charge, but he goes to another place. He doesn't show his presence for a long time. And the longer he's gone the more remote and powerless he seems. And so the tenant leaders begin to assume that his absence is permanent. And an attitude festers with the leaders of the vineyard so that they feel that, in effect, it is theirs. It is their possession. They don't view themselves as tenant farmers, but as themselves being the owners and of course, the passage of time, they have this, what we would call a terrible breach of contract. And it becomes readily apparent at harvest time because they won't give the harvest to the owner. They want to keep it for themselves. They've become so successful with the fruits of this vineyard 
that they're going to keep it for themselves. And finally, the outrage in the parable peaks with this ultimate violence in verse 37. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And of course, the son they'll murder is Jesus. Don't miss the huge distinction that Jesus makes between himself and the religious leaders. The leaders are the tenants. He's the son and heir. He's the author of what is a death parable. You could call it his prophetic autobiography. And he's already told us this just a chapter ago in Matthew 20. He said, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This parable teaches us two things about God's patience. One, that he is long-suffering, but two, it has its limits. God's judgment comes only after showing patience to his people. And Jesus lets them know there is a terminal severity awaiting unrepentant leaders. Verse 40, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and will let out the vineyard to other tenants. This is partly realized in the national judgment that took place uh, with the destruction of Israel in A.D. 70, but the ultimate reference is to the eternal uh, judgment for Israel's leadership and the reassignment of that leadership to a people who are mostly Gentile, as is recorded in the book of Acts. There is an eternal peril in resisting Christ's authority. Now, people who do that, who resist Christ's authority, don't think of this as especially bad uh, because they don't believe in the first place. But believers think of it as the most horrible thing because they believe it. The penalty for rejecting Jesus' authority is damnation, the wrath of the Lamb. And at the end, the parable forces you to ask, who is this guy? The challenge to Jesus' authority is reversed. The understanding of who the true believers are is reversed. The people who have all the power are going to lose it when their stewardship and keeping of the vineyard of Israel will be reversed. And finally we see the rejection itself is going to be reversed. Verse 42. If you remember when Jesus came in on Palm Sunday, the people were uh, chanting and praising him from Psalm 118. And now after telling the parables, Jesus is directing them back to Psalm 118, this time to verse 22, where the stone that becomes a cornerstone is understood to be the Messiah. And there he says, verse 42, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? Don't forget, he's telling it to the people who are the experts in the scriptures, who've read all the scriptures, who've memorized scriptures. And he says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The builders here are not stonemasons. These are the builders of Israel, the leaders of Israel, 
builder's popular image in G- for the leadership in Jesus' day. And Psalm 118 prophesied that the leaders of Israel would reject the stone, the Messiah, Jesus, and following his rejection, he would become the cornerstone. Christ is the cornerstone in the eternal temple of God. And in the rejected stone becoming the cornerstone, we see Jesus symbolized in his rejection and crucifixion, and then through resurrection becoming the risen Lord and Savior. So authoritative is Jesus that he is the judgment stone for every person, culture, and nation of all history. Whether you fall on him or he falls on you, the result is the same. Destruction. Look at verse 44. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's using two Old Testament allusions. First function of the stone, bringing disaster to those who fall on it, is derived from Isaiah chapter 8. It says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. And the corresponding function of the stone, that it will fall on some in judgment, and what it says, when it falls on anyone, it will crush him, is derived from Daniel 2, which describes, I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but it describes the supernaturally sculpted rock that smashes to pieces the statue of gold, silver, bronze, and clay, representing the world's kingdoms that King Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And our awesome risen Lord will return as this great crushing weight to judge the world. And his authority cannot be ignored. If you get anything out of these, uh, this text and these parables, it's that our attitude towards Jesus is everything. We will either rise or fall according to our faith or lack of faith in him. If we fall on him, he will fall on us, bringing eternal destruction on our souls. So for your own sake, I have to ask, is he your Lord? Is he your authority? Who is this guy? This parable is like no other parable that Jesus told. It's the only one that contains his own obituary. Imagine how he must have felt when he told it to his followers, as he told uh, them and us of the fate that's waiting for him. And all this the Savior did, knowing full well in a few days the wicked tenants are going to throw him out of the vineyard, out of the city, and have him killed. And still he tells the story. Still he shares the parable. Still he holds out in a final warning hope for a newfound faith and repentance, which is God's grace to sinners. The parables come to us cloaked as prophets. God's word points out the sin in our lives that we're blind to. And we can receive and believe what it says, or we can reject it and refuse to recognize its authority over us. It's very interesting, in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are confronted going in to the temple area by a man who's lame for birth, and he's begging, he asks them for alms. And he's expecting to receive something from him. And my all-time favorite verse, Peter challenges him and says, Look at me. And then in Acts 3, 6, he says, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. 
And the man rises and walks. He, they heal this crippled man. And for that act, they get arrested. Peter and John get arrested, and they're brought before the Sanhedrin, the same religious leaders who challenged Jesus in our passage this morning. And they give Peter and John essentially the same uh, uh, challenge that they gave to Jesus. We pick up the story in Acts 4. We see that before us, starting in Acts 4, verse 7. When they had set them in the midst, they inquired, this is the Sanhedrin asking the apostles, by what power or by what name did you do this? By what authority? That's what they're saying. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. If you don't ex accept his authority, you can't expect others to accept his authority. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give the good news of God's grace as it's found in Jesus Christ if you don't have it yourself. You can't call people to repent and believe if you don't repent and believe. You can't tell people about the Savior if you don't believe he's your Savior. This table over here is a gospel table. It's about receiving grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about coming to him in faith and repentance. It's about acknowledging him as the authority in and over your life. Is he the stone of offense that you're stumbling over? Or is he the cornerstone upon which your faith is built? Is he your king? And as you come forward this morning, ask yourself, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king, one who has authority. And in this passage, particularly in this parable, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. Help us to repent and believe the gospel. Help us to acknowledge the authority and lordship 
of Christ. Help us to come to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Help us to come to this table in faith and repentance, bowing before our King who loves us and lets us into his kingdom to eat at the King's table. And as always, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.